0: A few years ago at the Conservative Political Action Conference there was a panel entitled If heaven has a gate, a wall and extreme vetting, why can't America? The weaponizing of the sacred to establish borders and to desacralize those who seek to cross those borders as well as those whom the border crossed and to subsequently provide divine justification for the violence employed those positioned as inferior, excluded and other has received scant attention in the manifold conversations about migration borders, and race. My guest today, Associate Professor Gregory Cuellar, seeks to address this gap. His new detailed, weighty, and vital work, *Resacralizing the other at the U.S.-Mexico border, a borderland hermeneutic out now with Routledge, provides a much-needed substantive response to the state's use of sacralization to justify its acts of violence, and offers new ways of theologizing the acceptance of the other in its place. We talk about the way the sacred is weaponized by elite powers to shape the social reality, the way it grants permanence to the negating of the inherent sacred worth of the black and brown bodies of those approaching or crossing the border while sacralizing the Anglo-American project of colonization, violence, and manifest destiny. We talk about how, counterintuitively, appealing to the sacredness of the other can provide a way toward a healing strategy and how the book seeks to attend in a healing way, to the recurring open wounds of post-coloniality at the U.S.-Mexico border. Wounds that are, for the author, personal. My name is Liam Miller. This is Love, Repeat, and today's guest is Gregory Cuellar. Well, Gregory Cuellar, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's it's really exciting. We're going to be talking today about your book, Resacralizing the Other at the U.S.-Mexico Border: A Borderland Hermeneutic, out with Routledge. Uh, maybe just as a brief like overview, like let us know a little bit about yourself for those who have never uh, come across you before, and and I guess what led to writing this book. As I often talk with with my guests, it's like you know writing a book is a decent, uh, you know, uh, amount of effort. <laughs> you've got, you know, you've got to have some level of motivation to decide I'm going to put a bunch of time into this. Uh, so I guess what, what, what for you led, led to this?
1: Well, I'm a eighth generation Texan. My family have been in the region since the 18th century. So I, you know, when it comes to issues of border borderlands, I grew up hearing a lot about those issues early on and you know whether it be just stories that I heard from my grandparents or things that I read just living in the region you develop this innate sense for what's going on around you and I think that just culminated uh, as I've you know, as I advance further in my uh, doctoral work and in my own research abilities, having the ability just to to raise the issues that are current uh, to the Texas-Mexico border, but also the historical background that has led to much of what we are seeing today uh, on the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's it's mainly a Something that comes from my own family background, my own cultural upbringing, uh, my my social location is the the Texas-Mexico border. So just it just developed out of that.
0: Thanks for that, and and I think we'll get partly into that uh, later on. Where you talk about you know this this book, you know, and it's and it's 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 caring and healing and and about wounds that are you know not just out there but but a personal so might. Um, get around to that soon Um, people might have guessed from the book from the title of the book that the sacred uh, as a concept and the sacred uh, you know and its power is is key to the to the book and its argument Uh, but one of the things important points you establish right off the bat is that you know the sacred can be stripped of its otherworldliness uh by its use for and by elite powers of society so the sacred then you know is not just some uh, not by necessity, some kind of uncontrollable other out there that, that we can't possibly look upon or get our hands on, but, but something that can be controlled by elite powers to shape social reality, um, often for, in this case, rather wicked and violent ends. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you, you know, I guess, configure the sacred in the book and, uh, and and maybe kind of any kind of just just um, easy wading in examples of of how how it can be weaponized.
1: Yeah, I think that's so. There's a combination of of elements that I'm I'm drawing on. One has to do with my own research as an archivist, working at a public university and in their archive. I was exposed. F- to the entire process of archiving material. And the archive being in Texas, there was a lot of interest uh, on Texas history and seeing how the institution of an archive regulates what is uh, worthy of collecting, what is worthy of being put in its repository and then, declared as evidence for historical claims, that process for me re- reflected a, a sacralization of information, a sacralization of, of history uh, by the very institution itself. And the, there's the politics that under undergirds that process of archiving history not just what is chosen, but what is excluded. And seeing the exclusions for me pointed to a desacralization of histories, cultures, identities. And so that was sort of the, the, that's the basis uh, from which I'm then critiquing other domains within the public sphere where the state seeks to invest in uh, what is considered sacred, whether it be the notion of citizenship, whether it be monuments, whether it be the specific profiles of people. You know, the warrior mentality, I think is the male warrior persona is also one that is is sacralized and so all of these elements and these areas domains are converging to see this broader system uh, broader operations of power taking hold of belief taking hold of the those those areas of 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 thought are. Way of, of looking at the world that can lead to controlling people's activities, controlling people's ways of uh, of, of socially organizing themselves. So there, there are you know a lot of these uh, in, in this area, this sort of convergence. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested in seeing that you know these investments how you have nefarious power systems that are opportunistically looking for ideologies, they're looking for forces that bring collectives together, sparks their imagination and that has some level of authority and then use that as a way of perpetuating violence and perpetuating Motives and agendas that may not lead to uh, sort of a, you know, a, a democratic situation. You know, a democratic state. You know, it's it's more of a um, a narrow view of of you know who who can who who has access and who doesn't. Um, so that, I mean, these these are some of the things that I'm trying to flesh out in the book. Is that how the sacred, as a an area of influence, can be a place of investment for power structures that want to perpetuate um, a vision of the world or a way of of operating in the world that dehumanizes um that can lead to mass um violence and uh, the you know the oppression of large populations and that sort of the, it's it, that's how it culminates and, and in the book I'm I'm following the the evolution of manifest destiny as one of those ideological elements that is drawing on history, it's drawing on archive, it's drawing on folklore, it's bringing multiple areas that have some level of authority within society and forcing these these areas, I mean forcing all of these multiple authorities into this notion of the sacred and then harnessing that for nefarious purposes. And I think that's been something that has been understudied in, in not just migration studies, um, border studies, how the sacred was so, so so instrumental as a viable domain of investment for power structures, elite power structures like the state uh, to advance certain agendas that in their full effect, we could see that they only um, benefit a minority of the population while excluding mass populations, othering mass populations in the process. So there's an ethic yeah. also in, involved in 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 that evolution of the sacred authority that elite power develops, uh, cultivates. Hmm.
0: Thank you for that. I think that that kind of started to get to another question I wanted to ask, which was because, as you say, there's there's lots of writings about about migration and and the border, uh, and and so you know I was curious about what 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 is gained by you know approaching through this lens of the sacred right through not neglecting the concept of the sacred and you know you, you early in the book you um spend a lot of time with a uh, a sermon by a military chaplain at the end of the, the u.s mexico war and and you're kind of talking about you know the evocation of almighty god and 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 how in that sermon there's even before kind of any appeal to these people as like a you know, criminality there's an appeal to there's a defect in their concept of the sacred, and that is what needs to be addressed. And and that this appeal to the sacred allows for a sense of permanence. That what is wrong now in in two centuries ago it is will always be wrong, and thus will always need to have this dynamic. Um, and, and then that's similarly found then in, in like in language around treaties, which you know establish border um, in a way that it makes you you know seem you know, natural or sacred that this is the, um, geography of where this border goes. And again, that becomes thus a state of permanence, even though it is a, you know, in the grand scheme of human history and civilization, very modern. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, you know, what is, you know, you're not, you're not setting this up as, and thus this invalidates any other way of exploring and speaking about what's going on at the border, but this is an often, um, overlooked or underappreciated concept, um, What are some of the things like like that kind of concept of permanence um, that are kind of gained through this, through picking up sacred as, as the, the kind of the key hermeneutical tool?
1: Yeah, I think that's what makes the sacred attractive to elite power structures is that it has the potential to render permanent certain social realities. And so when you have a conquering empire at least at the 19th century, when you had the Manifest Destiny and U.S. expressing its imperialism um, on the Republic of Mexico, that they're they're identifying those elements of the sacred that can lead to permanence. Uh, Permanence, not just of ideas, but Permanence of presence, permanence of structures, permanence of institutions, and th- so th- that becomes. and I, I see this at the at mostly at the the initial stages of gaining some foothold within a colonized territory. Is that you have the, this the, the colonizer um, starting out by harnessing these sacred domains and sacred ideas those those areas that have accrued authority um, as um, kind of a sort of a, a carrying a, a religiosity you know there's this, this there's the definitely elements of the divine present there but there's also this accrued and accumulated investments that have been made through religion mainly organized religion uh, and building these these authorities up of the sacred and so the state converges on those those uh, opportunities and sees them as uh, ways to create permanence for elite power structures so it's not it's not a very i mean i don't see it as a a casual or benign appeal or recourse to religious language in treaties or in formal sermons as a way of of just framing secular thought. Uh, it's 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 the it's the portal that that is where you enter in you enter in through the sacred to establish the secular, to establish that permanency of state power. And I, you could see that throughout all, uh, much of the language in the treaties that established what is now the Texas-Mexico border. You know, the Treaty of Hidalgo starts off with an invocation to the divine, both in English and in Spanish, sermons that were preached at the the culmination of the Mexican-American War commemorate not just the defeat of the Mexican army and and, and its its colonization, but it also establishes this sense of permanency for Anglo-American dominance in the region. Uh, And, you know, being here in the Western Hemisphere, we, we are very much confronted with a racial logic that is intertwined with the sacred. So what has been cultivated as a sacred idea or sacred uh, belief is the inferiority of non-white populations. That is, You know, you either confirmed using Christian scripture, theology, even the Protestant church as a way of bolstering this notion of of Anglo-American superiority. That is something that has been rendered permanent in much of the social structures surrounding the Texas-Mexico border, the U.S.-Mexico border, you know, the, the inferior is on the outside and needs to be excluded. And that exclusion stems from this sacralized notion that there is a superior population, there's a superior being on earth, that God has designated certain physiognomies to be superior than others. Uh, Science can do, uh, you know, science has a a certain uh, ability to, you know, capture the imagination and galvanize a collective around a particular agenda using empirical uh, evidence. But the sacred, it is still one of those quintessential domains for elite power to tap into and mine that that domain for what it can produce in terms of, uh, you know, perpetuating certain social structures. There's something about the... Uh, it's it's this appeal to the divine that allows for state power, elite power to solidify itself for the long term um, and 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 it not be in any way inhibited or um, that there's there's very little room for response. Because God s- said this right? this is this is this is from the divine and I think that's like
0: as say establishing that kind of concept of supremacy concept establishing that the concept of borders which thus creates an, an outsider who is inferior and then the way then that that um, appeal to the sacred then you know obviously justifies then violence you know uh, as, as a divinely justifies violence as a protection of um, what has been seen as superior, protection of sovereignty, citizenship, these things. And that that violence can then take, you know, all manner of forms from, you know, individual kind of um, ad hoc violence, but also institutional structures that uh, impose violence on, on, on bodies. Um, but then also the way it, it creates attitudes in the body politic that justify those the, that violence. So, so I was thinking about, um, yeah, you were talking about, like, so there's the disac. Desacralizing power uh, made possible this this weaponizing of the sacred uh, that affords the one wielding the power the negating the sacred worth of the other so they can negate what is inherently what we should think is inherently sacred in another particularly in the case of of black and brown bodies approaching or crossing the border and I guess what what that brought up for me was that there's this you know even even merciful acts you know so to speak of of offering water. Become in themselves political or, if not illegal. Uh, and, and I was drawn to this quote later, where you're kind of talking about like the way the state sponsored care and, and, and the border and, and all this. Um, that what is grossly evil is how this elite complex of control is able to convince the body politic that certain humans are unworthy of full access to life's resources solely on the basis of their darker color. On, of the de- of their darker skin color, sorry, uh, and so I was thinking about this this relationship between taking away that negating that sacred, and its relationship to then taking away the the basic stuff of human survival and human living. Um, and if you have yeah, any thoughts to share there,
1: yeah, and that's that is how you know in sort of mapping the trajectory that elite power. So I'm talking about when I say elite power, I'm, I'm referring to power that seeks to colonize. Uh, that is what we see as uh, the the initial impetus are what brought forth the Mexican-American War and then led to the formation. You know, you have the colonization of half of the Republic of Mexico's territory, and then the the creation of this geographical border so that you know when you follow the use of the sacred there's the permanency that is an objective you know you, you you're using your time your resources you're you're inv- you're investing in the sacred so that you can create a permanent situation you can you you can create a permanent society for those you have deemed as members of that that sacred narrative that sacred meta-narrative but there's another I think element that is the byproduct of those investments and that has to do with the use of, of violence you you create a a domain that is evil and that evil takes on a physical form, a human body, and then you are able to, so you, you, you create the, the, you demonize uh, the, the, this other, those who are non-members of the sacred narrative. And, you know, that's part of where the violence starts. It's, it's you, you are forming, reformulating the sacred to perpetuate elite power structures. Um, and in order to do that, you have to create an evil, you, this is this construction of the evil, much much like the divine is in the cosmic that is being appealed to, in order to recreate this elite powers sacred. Uh, you you're also having to appeal to in in the cosmic to this evil domain that you're constructing, and that evil domain has physical form within the logic, the racial logic that has permeated the investments of the sacred here in in this part of the world, especially as it pertains to the formation of the U.S.-Mexico border, right? You're talking about Black and brown-bodied people who have been designated as the enemy of states are the elite power's sacred narrative. So there's the, the ideological violence that happens that then leads to the physical violence. And you can you then remove, desensitize yourself. You are able to um, distance yourself from the humanity of, that, of, of those who have been designated as the other, as the, the domain of the evil. And set in motion, you know, an entire gamut of of, of violent operations. It really doesn't, it's, you know, this is where, you know, I hadn't incorporated a lot of Akile Mbembe's work on necropolitics. I was mainly trying to flesh out what I had experienced from my own social location and wanting to theorize on that. But I think Akile and Mbembe would resonate with the ultimate extent of what it starts off as ideological, then can end up in genocide. And there be complete justification for the mass annihilation of, of bodies without any question. And, and they're seen simply as that, as enemies of the state, enemies of elite power that have been conquered and that need to be eradicated. That's what makes the sacred then so dangerous when it, is, when it does um, take on these investments by elite power. It's not to better our notion of the sacred, it's to harness the sacred to annihilate human beings, and I, that, for me, is a a, a fundamental eth- ethical issue that we need to address.
0: Uh huh. Yeah, thank you for that. I agree, and I think your book does so well at capturing the yeah, the, 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 the danger and the fear of this weaponizing of the sacred. Like it, it is I'll, you know, the, the book has weight to it in, in, in how, it, how it unfolds this argument. I think it is, um, you know, the, that fear and that danger is, is so well captured. So, so we've been talking about the way, you know, this othering works to, to demonise, to, to, you know, ev- you know to, to um, inflict violence on, uh, but the book also seeks to look at the way otherness doesn't have to solely be an empire-building strategy. It can also provide the way to a healing strategy. Um, The way, you know, otherness can be the way into this borderland hermeneutic. So so can you talk a little bit about how this kind of um, reconfiguring of otherness and and diversity um, actually can, you know, take these other tools and and, and kind of counterintuitively flip the system?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what Gloria and Zaldúa, Teaches us in a lot of the wisdom that she has provided in Borderlands and then in her later writings before um, she uh, passed away. And, and you know, there's a, it's a really quite ingenious but simple paradigm, and, and, and that has to do with the notion that sacred is otherworldly. So that that concept, I built uh, further on and expounded, sought to expound further, and thinking of how when we when 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 sacred is encountered, you know, whether it be through some form of spirituality, meditation, um, sacred texts religious practice, there's, there's an otherness present within those movements. Uh, And that I think is something that, you know, if you, if you, you know, I'm not, I'm not starting from the, divine image ethic. Now that's something that I, I think has been written on extensively. And, and there's, there's a, a number of good ethicists and theologians who can expound upon, you know, the importance of, of you know, human worth because of the divine image present in all humans. So I was I was wanting to pivot differently from Gloria and work, and naming the sacred as intrinsically other. And, and, and there's already a, you know it's it's a it's 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 a convincing logic. On on on, on in its simplicity, there's, it's, a, it's it's quite compelling that to think of other not as some existential threat or an evil that then we need to respond to through violence, but that the other, because it's other to us, is a sacred domain. So turning to the other in that sense is where I then try and, and, and develop a um, an approach to human care. And of course, curanderismo is a practice that is very familiar in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. It is this informal healthcare system that is channeling nativist thought i mean um native american thought native american practice it's also uh, channeling catholic spiritualism and there's also this localized understanding of of then you know how it's expressed Um, so all of these various strains that are informing curanderismo, for me, manifest are are sort of a a reification of what turning to the other as sacred means is, is, you know, turning to plants, turning to aromas, turning to combinations of, you know, the space and uh, the ambiance, um certain objects, all of these various things that would be considered maybe in some formal settings uh as heretical, but that it's that it's it's there's something uh that taps into that otherness as sacred, and if you know if that, we could, you know, this is a, you could say maybe a post colonial move. It is a decolonizing move to give worth to epistemologies that are outside of Western uh, European um, philosophical traditions. It's, it's, you know the 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 unseen, the 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 unwritten, the the oral histories, all of the, those elements that we find, you know, that are, that are not part of the professional literature. Uh, that's what I'm turning to.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And I think when you write about, like later in the book, about um, the Karandera cur- praxis, you know, and, and as a way of. You know, an indictment of the kind of state constructed spaces of human care uh, in privileging well-being over over commodification. I think that's a, a really powerful section of the book in in, in in pointing to the way like that even the way state sponsored care has been kind of um, brought into this whole other weaponizing thing. And so so to go beyond that something that's so other for for for, for so many who, who are not, you know, from this region is um, and, and and the care you you know you take in you know talking about this processes and what it is about bringing you know um, helping to reclaim or restore the sacred in bodies that have been desacralized is I think uh, yeah a really important uh, move in the book
1: mm-hmm. yeah and, and I'm looking at what you just, just described in comparison to the state sanctioned vaccination that. Uh, was imposed upon a Mexican American neighborhood in Laredo during the 1899 smallpox epidemic, and how they were immediately deemed the, uh, you know, the, the, the bearer of the of the virus. They were they were they were the ones who were the diseased, the unclean, the ones that needed to be quarantined. Uh, so these. You know, this is, this is the expression of what you would think safe uh, healthcare approach where you want to vaccinize a population in order to, to maintain public health um, through a racial logic ends up actually doing more harm than good. And curanderismo as an alternative, as not so much an alternative, but as the other way of approaching healthcare, you find elements in the, in the approach that I think would, would um, be a far more public health benefit, even if it's just the, the way you understand the body and the presence of, of people within the room that involves the healing uh, performance. You know, there's something there that we can learn an enormous about, uh, enormous amount about how to heal um, humans uh, in ways that give them worth, right? And 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 so there's, I, you know, I hadn't thought about the, the current situation that we find ourselves in, or the the current global public health crisis, but I think that Curanderos could offer us some very compelling um, wisdom in how to create spaces of healing for people uh, rather than seeing human beings as objects for surveillance and uh, commodification, right? And then and, and political, uh, advancement. Uh, you know what is it that we could do to re-invent um, or transform the way in which healthcare providers approach people who are um, co- confronting um, serious healthcare issues, um, and and so this is this is an attempt to to at least bring that to the to to discussion. It's not, and it's you know, it's not as full as I would have liked it. Uh, but I wanted to at least give enough um, framework to this approach to health to healing uh, that there could be some discussion about the current approaches that are used and in, in, by this, especially by state uh, power.
0: Thank you for that. Um, just to stay with with healing uh, a little bit, early on you established that the book seeks to, you know, attend in a healing way to the recurring wounds of post-coloniality open wound at the US-Mexico border. Uh, as you kind of uh, mentioned at the outset, this book came from, you know, your own your own life, your own lived experience, your own location, your own family history, and it also then attends to to wounds that are personal. Um, As much as you're willing to, how how was it to try to, you know, approach to write this book, you know, know, um, when it is so close to the lived experience, close to things that are, are, you know, real threats, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and real wounds?
1: Well, one of the things that I would do when I would write on uh, you know write a section uh, for the book is uh, I would light an incense and a candle you know, those are two po- important elements that curanderos uh, teach us uh, in setting setting the room for what you're beginning to what you're going to engage the the voices that are at stake in rereading this history and re, re- conceptualizing it, um, theorizing on pain, theorizing on the violence that has been experienced firsthand um, by members of my own family, uh, what it means to be displaced as small business owners, to be intimidated, to uh, be thought of as insignificant, as not being able to contribute to uh, mainstream society. This white supremacist uh, mentality that permeates um, institutional life, uh, whether it be in education um, in you know, finding a profession, this is, there, there are wounds that go back to ancestors and I could feel the, the weight of those wounds when I would come to the computer and begin to write uh, and I could hear voices. I could hear my grandmother's voice. I could hear sayings and jokes. Th- these are these are, and even the unheard stories. You you know that there's pain and just the animosity that is felt by many still who are of uh, um, ethnic Mexican in the U.S. Southwest, who can, you know, go back to, their family goes back prior to the formation of the U.S.-Mexico border. There, there's, there's this generational pain and trauma that osmotically is transferred, and you, you don't know the fullness of it, you can't articulate its exactness, but you, 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 you have a, it's aura, it, it possesses you, and you need to get it out, you need to to speak about it. Um, I think of of the story of Cain and Abel, you know the, the blood, the blood, it's it still cries out in the land. Uh, I mean, there's still blood being shed. On the U.S.-Mexico border, but the blood that has been shed unjustly uh, since the formation of the border—it cries out. Thank you for that,
0: and I, uh, yeah, that's very powerful. And I think uh, we, we benefit very much from from the witness you provided, the work that you have. So um, I appreciate you know the the work that it took, and uh, I hope that many others do as they as they turn to this book. I guess a, a kind of a question is we're kind of coming into land. We, we never know, especially with, you know, books which, you know, take a long time to produce that they can come out in 2020 and then 2020 looks a lot different than, than everyone suspected as, as you know, you even started to hint at a bit with the talking about the uh, healing and things like that. And obviously when COVID kind of was first happening, you know, around the world, one of the first things that everyone or politicians sought to attend to was borders uh we'll close borders and, and things like that and and the u.s was quick to do that even even if i think it was pointed out the, so some, maybe somewhat the logic of it given that there were many more cases in the u.s than in than in than in mexico so i, I just curious about how you know with that borders became such a again you know understandably a, a kind of a, a point of political interest and rhetoric. Uh, how has anything in this kind of you know from from thinking about the book for so long and then coming into this context is it just like yep absolutely as expected um could have seen that, that was going to be a, a point or anything that's kind of surprised you in the way that the the language has happened or or anything that maybe we can be people can be attentive to when they start to hear this conversation happening because again you know you're like oh yes we have to be careful and safe and and you know, you'll hear stories about, well, yes, New Zealand did so good because they shut their borders very early and, and things like that. And so it, it almost becomes this kind of justifying thing for what potentially could be lasting a lot longer than the present circumstances.
1: Yeah, I think early on, the political rhetoric that was coming out of the White House began to connect Chinese nationals with the, the virus and then pivoted quickly to the US-Mexico border and the need for uh, increased border security. And for me that echoed clearly the 1899 uh, smallpox epidemic and how the state in declaring, you know, the need for public health and safety uh, created this this demonized other as the the originator of the virus. And that then justified increased border security and the use of violence. So the Texas Rangers were deployed to the neighborhood that was refusing to be vaccinized, um, in large part because they were drawing on their curanderismo as an approach to smallpox, feeling that that was... A much more um, appropriate um, approach to to their health and one that they could trust. And so when the state came in with this paramilitary force to impose quarantine and impose vaccines, uh, vaccinations in ways that were were dehumanizing, right they, they so this mentality of using the issue of of health as a sacred domain. So it's it's converting it into a sacred domain that the the need to protect our citizenry uh, from the infection of this virus, that is a sacred narrative. And then it elevates to the, because it's attaching to other sacred uh, uh, elements like citizenship and sovereignty the the border um, integrity, all of these elements come to play when it when you're talking about the the health of your 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 citizenry, and so it it just unfolds again, in in, in textbook fashion, um, and I, I always try to tell my students if you could just read 19th century political rhetoric, it, it, it's the same rhetoric that we're hearing today. It's the same tactic. It's the same investment in manifest destiny. It's the same strategy. It, ha, it's, it's, it it's, so it, what has surprised me is that we are still being manipulated by a, um, this longstanding approach, the same Operations of power of elite power, and that's I think what's not only su- it's surprising that we haven't caught on, but it is also a bit frustrating.
0: Thank you for that. I think that that's you know as we as we're finishing thinking about like you know that you know part of the first step of of, of you know working toward resacralizing the other is realizing that there has been a desacralizing process at play for a long time that that just takes on you know puts on a new hat but doesn't change much uh, about it um if there's a second step that you would just like to like uh, leave people with if, if that first step is you know as they're re- you know obviously the first step of course is is picking up the book and reading the book uh, and, and realizing this process that has taken place if, if you're thinking there's some sort of small second step that that, that you would want to encourage or, or leave people within that if who want to get on side of this resacralizing the other and seeing that other as sacred and, and not as ourselves as sacred and to protect ourselves from some anti sacred otherness is there is there something you want to leave us with here and it doesn't have to be because it doesn't might you know certainly not a simple thing but I just thought I'd offer that yeah I think
1: you know. Um, you know, when it comes to theorizing on violence and offering a, a critical response to how elite power has demonized, dehumanized uh, people of color and used their demonization for uh, their own, perp- you know, its its own perpetu- uh, perpetuation. Um, you know, it's 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 being vigilant of. How the sacred uh, is is working, um, and, and to be an auditor of uh, you know sacred Im- you know, investments in the sacred, whether it be in your local church, whether it be in your community of faith, to be to be um, not just a a willful uh, a consumer of theology. And going with what you sense is having currency, uh, but to, to, to audit the sacred and, and, and even beyond just uh, religious domains to, to see how it, it's working in uh, political uh, arenas. Uh, and I, we've, we've been, you know, I think in the West since modernity it sort of led to, to see religious thought, religious ideas, the sacred, as um, an area that will in some, at some point in the, in, in the future diminish in its uh, importance, that secularity will overcome uh, the sacred, but it hasn't gone away. I mean, we're, we're seeing the sacred, being a place of, of healing as you could see in most uh, cities across the world how migrant populations occupy buildings that were once thought to be for secular use and have become now used for um, places of worship uh, you know it's, the sacred is not going to go away and and so that's I think uh, a beautiful thing it's a Uh, a hopeful thing that there is this draw to the sacred, but it's also the other side of it, right? Where there is the continual appeal and recourse to the sacred, there are state uh, elite power structures that will most definitely uh, seek to invest in those realms of authority, and then repurpose them, to create worlds that run counter to much of religious thought. And that has to do with the liberation of of human beings.
0: Thank you for that. And that's 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 an excellent spot to end. So, the book is resacralizing the Other at the U.S.-Mexico Border, a borderland, a borderland Hermeneutic, out with Routledge. Pick it up if you can, or if you're at a seminary or theological college, tell your librarian to get it in. Uh, Gregory, anything else you want to plug, any other ways people can connect with you or classes you want to let people know about, anything you want to uh, draw our attention to at this moment?
1: Well, thank you so much, Liam, for the invitation to speak about this work. I look forward to future book reviews or responses anyone may have. Uh, This is not the end all of the topic. I'm hoping that it opens up the conversation as you have done so here. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for that.